Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're between the presidential election and Inauguration Day, getting a handle on where the media stands is more important than ever. Today, I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning CBS journalist Wesley Lowry. This is Episode 7. From the discourse around media works like the 1619 Project, to the discourse around the Tom Cotton New York Times op-ed, to the media bias centered around national politics over local issues, we start with the work which won him the Pulitzer, which takes work, unlike a lot of the media. So I want to start with uh, throwing around some of your credentials. <laughs> you won a, a Pulitzer Prize in 2016 at the age of 26 for the uh, Fatal Force Project. And I, I think for people who aren't familiar with that, I want to start there, talk a little bit about that sure. and the, the impetus for, for starting that. But I also want to tee it up because it really represents, I think, this this nuanced, comprehensive project. It was about police shootings. And it, it's interesting to look at that today versus, say, some of the coverage of 2020, um, because it does seem like, you know, that really stands out as something that, you know, that, that, like I said, it was, it was nuanced and, and deep and, and told a lot of different things. Um, and I I guess start there. How how did that come about and, and your work with it? Sure. Uh, yeah. So at the time, you know, I kind of get thrust into this line of coverage, by happenstance a little bit. You know, I, I do think that good reporters are always trying to find their way to weasel into stories, whether they're their beat or not, right? There's something about that hunger and that drive. If you you love doing this, you find a way to, you know, if it's the story we're talking about, you find a way into it. Right. But for me, you know, I came to the Washington Post in early 2014 as a congressional reporter. I was on the Hill covering politics of the day at the stakeouts with then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid um, and Nancy Pelosi. And, um, but I always had an interest in kind of issues of justice and issues of race. I'd covered them a little bit previously in my jobs at the Boston Globe and the Los Angeles Times. I was trying to find ways on the Hill to make that work. And so whether it was discussion about the Voting Rights Act and whether it would be renewed or kind of other issues like that. And when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson in August, I came in that Monday. He's killed on a Saturday. There's violence, unrest, protest on Saturday night, Sunday. Everyone wakes up Monday morning and a gas station has been burned down. Um, and that was kind of the flag to the national media that we all needed to parachute in, which, you know, I think might be a <laughs> might say something about all of us anyway. But um, I came in on Monday and was just trying to figure out how to help out. And so I went over to Mark Berman, who works on our national desk, um, who is a close friend and colleague of mine. I said, hey, how can I help? Can I call the congressional delegation from Missouri? Do you need national civil rights types? I know the NAACP. I know folks like that. And an editor happened to be walking past and said, hey, are you talking about Ferguson? Could you get on the airplane and go? We don't have anyone on the ground. Hmm. And so I ended up going out thinking I'd be there for three days. You know, I would write some feature piece for the weekend and ended up honestly staying there close to three months and then spending the next three years kind of on the police and protest beat. And 
the Fatal Force project grew out of some of that on-the-ground reporting. We were obviously kind of flooding the zone, trying to figure out how to cover the Ferguson story. What was it? What did that look like? And that included a lot of reporting about the specific incident itself with Michael Brown and Darren Wilson, but then also trying to get a sense of what was this place? What is policing like here? What are the bigger themes? And something that came up time and time again in the reporting was that you know, you'd have activists, civil rights folks, just normal residents, people who are joining the protest who would say, this is a crisis. You know, black people are being killed in the streets all the time. This has to stop. And we would call the police or the police unions and other folks, and they would say, no, that's nonsense. That's not true. We're not killing black people in the streets every day. And it occurred to us, and we weren't the only ones, but it occurred to us that there's got to be an answer to that question. Either this thing is happening every day or it is not. Right. right, that there wasn't much <laughs> utility in us writing all these stories, quoting you know two opposing sides without doing some effort to answer the question. Um, and so we started poking around in that. I did a piece, I think, in October of 2014, where I asked, where I raised this question. Right, you know, how many people are being killed by the police each year? As it turns out, we don't know. And finding that. The you know federal government was not keeping accurate data or statistics on this. Those the data they kept was being quoted at times, but it was a complete voluntary self-report. There are eighteen thousand police departments in the country. Um, they, once a year, DOJ asks them a few questions, and a few hundred of the departments respond. Right, and so our we had no national sense. And then we also profiled a few uh, kind of citizen journalism efforts that had become uh, vital in trying to answer this question. At the time, there was this website called killedbypolice.net, I think, that was actually the definitive resource for how many people had been killed. And it was just some like anonymously curated, every person they could find with a link to their Facebook page, you know, some guy in their basement, right? And that was the best resource that existed. And so we launched uh, the next year the Fatal Force Project. And what that was, it was a, what, what it still is, is a real-time or relatively real-time database to answer the question, how many people are being killed by the police? And so what we did was we, at the very beginning, made a decision to do this based on local media reports, uh, supplemented with our own reporting. And so... Because obviously, in a journalistic sense, the first thing you would think is, oh, we'll send a FOIA request to all the police departments. But as I noted, 18,000 police departments, they are all governed by different state laws um, that we would have to spend an entire year even just sending the FOIAs out, and we still wouldn't get the number. And so, but what we knew and what uh, this was wisdom passed on by some of these citizen journalists who had done it themselves was that when someone is shot and killed by the police in America, whether it's one of the largest uh, media places in the world, Chicago, L.A., New York, or the smallest, Jackson Hole or, or West Virginia, somewhere in West Virginia or Montana, it's written about at least one time by one local journalist. You get a newspaper paper blurb. You get a TV person standing at the crime scene tape you know, for the afternoon news. And so what we figured out is we could basically set up a series of complicated Google alerts that would flag us anytime there was a new mention of an officer-involved shooting, a police shooting, and that that would be a tip sheet for us. And yeah. so then we could start basically building out an Excel sheet and then following up and filling out the information. So we did that um, in that first year in 2015. Um, and, and I should note that 
at the time, in real time, there was some controversy around that, uh, that some police groups said it was anti-police for us to even be counting the number. Um, or we would get, uh, you know, we would get, people would get upset with us often in conservative media um, because they would say, there, there was, and I'm trying to uh, phrase this criticism in like a good faith way. I didn't think it was a fair criticism, but I, what they were, there was an argument or a sense that we were trying to run the number up, right? Right. There was an assumption that every police shooting was bad. And so if we get the bigger the number, the worse we were saying the police were. That uh, honestly wasn't the point. Like, we, we literally just wanted to know the answer to the question, right? How can we have a national conversation about if something's happening too often or not happening too often if we don't know how often it's happening? And so we would get criticism, for example, they would be a terrorist who would get shot and killed by police. And so we would include them in our database, right? This was a person who was shot and killed by the police. And, and there were times where there would be pieces like, can you believe the Washington Post is including this part? And it's like, well, were they killed by the police? <laughs> Why wouldn't they be in a database of all of the people killed by the police? And so it, but anyway, what we did was we, we tracked this and then we also tried to write big analysis pieces about what the data was telling us, right? And so the findings were, one, there was something to be said about frequency, that every day in America, about three people are shot and killed by the police. That is significantly more than the, the data we had previously would suggest, right? Mm-hmm. Not weighing it on if that's a good or bad thing or whatever, but it's good to know that, right. just as a data point, right? The, well, one of the second big pieces we did was looking at uh, mental health and mental illness, that we did very conservative estimations, right? But we found that at least one in three cases, the person was in the midst of some type of mental health crisis. Um, And that very often the officers deployed hadn't been trained in that, right? And so if what we all want, and I think it's fair to say we all want to live in a world where the police kill as few people as possible because they, you know, are not placed as few positions as possible where this might happen, right? Um, One major component of this was, well, what are the circumstances and are there, could there be policy changes? Could be there be different training? Are they equipped for what they're being sent into? So that was a big, major finding. Um, we looked at race. We looked at, you know, so we looked at all these different things. And even today, um, we, we keep this, uh, you know, Julie Tate and Jennifer Jenkins, two of the researchers at The Post, do the lion's share of the work at this point, um, And they are just saints for it. But they, um, we keep it up. That answer kind of brings up a couple things that I want to talk about. Um, sure. lo- the importance of local news, I think, is, is a big one, which I want to get to at the end. Uh, but but really also, I think, is this idea of curiosity, which I've been kind of railing against with Fourth Watch for uh, the better part of a year now, it, it is a is a general, I would say, lack of curiosity, lack of engagement with, or, or, or even jumping to conclusions on some level. Um, you know, the, the criticism that you got from, from the police, but also even from, I would say, in some corners of within the media um, of people saying, oh, you know, you're just trying to do this or you're just trying to say that. It's like, no, we're just doing, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing where it goes. We're, we're seeing, you know, we're, we're doing the journalism, we're doing the work and getting us there. And, and I wanted to, I guess, ask you about that curiosity, because I, I, I think that one of the things, uh, one of the reasons that I've enjoyed talking with you, we've done uh, email interviews and we've talked, you know, d- through Twitter and whatnot, uh, uh, is, is that, is, 
your your willingness to engage with people that you don't necessarily always agree with, or or even just a curiosity that I think is missing from a lot of corners uh, of the media these days. So w- why do you think that is? What, what do you think is happening there, and how do we fix it? Yeah, I think that journalistic curiosity is really, really important. Um, I was just earlier today on a conversation about uh, defund the police. Uh, you know, Barack Obama recently weighed in on what he thought was the utility of that statement. And one of the things I said, and you and I have talked about this this part of it before, yeah. is you know I believe that too much of our media and too much of our media conversation is politics adjacent, is about politics, right? And so in the space that I exist in, and kind of criminal justice, race, this, this space, right, there, it's a policy question very often, right? Municipal police budgets are small d democratic local government, right? It doesn't really matter what Barack Obama thinks about them, right? Now, I understand how it matters in like a national political sense, and that, but of all of the pieces written about this question, there will be 10,000 about Barack Obama's comments, and maybe one or two that actually go and figure out what's happened in these places that have started defunding. Well, in terms of understanding the issue, (laughs) one of those things has value and the other doesn't really. And and so I think that's, I think our job as journalists, I think there are two things that, you know, very, very broadly, journalism can be divided into two buckets. Uh, The bucket that records things that have happened Right, writes down what Barack Obama says yesterday. Um, right, and this then, thing happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and, and that can and that includes a commentary too, like response to this thing that has happened. Right, and then there's a secondary bucket which brings new information into the conversation. Right, going and figuring out how many people got shot by the police, mm-hmm. figuring out how many cities have defunded and what has happened in those cities since. Right. And I think that our scales are out of whack in journalism, where I think we have way too much of the the former and not enough of the latter, right? I'm dying to read a really smart piece on what's happening in these cities that have started um, cutting back police budgets or stuff like, you know, because I don't know. I might, I have some ideas that are informed by my pseudo-expertise in the space, right? But I would love to and eventually will myself do some of this, right? I want to read something that tells me something I don't already know. Yeah. And a little bit of that, I would say Nellie Bowles sure. with New York Times did something Certainly. in Minneapolis. I thought that was, that was great. But yeah, no, I would say for sure we're, we're not, we, we don't get either, uh, we don't get the latter very, very much. Uh, and it's one of the reasons where, it's one of the spaces where like the exception proves the rule, right? Where you yeah. and I can like name two right. or three because it's they stand out because they're so different. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's the, and, and again, and that doesn't have to be in any specific direction, right? I might personally believe certain things about this or not, but a smart piece even that reports against my priors or provides different contextualizing information makes me smarter about it, right? Whatever it is. And so I think that that's a big part of this too. Yeah. Is that, um, I, I think that, because it was, it was also hard is that, you know, you noted that with Fatal Force, we got some blowback kind of within the industry. That was certainly true. But I, Part of it also is, especially around issues of activism broadly, um, there is a there is a sense, and I and I and I think this is very true. Maybe not as much in the political space, but it's definitely true in the kind of meat and potatoes reporter space, um, people who cover non politics. That like 
if you cover a bunch of places that are defunding, are you somehow putting your foot on the scale in favor of it? What were we advancing the protest movement by writing all this stuff about police shootings? Now, what I would argue is if a national conversation is happening, our job as journalists is to insert as much information into it as possible, right? But I do think that there's a sensitivity, you know, and, and by doing that, you are unquestionably going to be accused of being in bed with whomever your findings support. Right. 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 <laughs> in whatever. And I think that sometimes we got to get over that. Right. That I'm I'm very glad six years out that we did all that work. Yeah. And all those people who said that we were just activists and blah, you know, they have to cite our numbers all the time. <laughs> so the first email I got after we won the Pulitzer was from the head of the FOP saying right. congrats. Right. You know, and so you take all that in the short term in part to uh, because if the work stands up, the work stands up. Well, and that's, you know, part of that is is doing the work. You know, there, there is a sense, I think, also of, of you know, it's it's much easier to do the former that you're describing. It's much easier to, uh, to this thing happened, react to it. Um, but to, to do that work, and, and I, I do think, I, I put a little bit of this uh, at Twitter um, because, you know, I do think that I'm, uh, it's just both destructive and addictive, um, particularly yes. among the media. Um, and I would include myself in that. Um, but it's become this, this programming mechanism for cable news. It's what people are making decisions based on now, uh, what's trending. And, and it also, I do think that, that Twitter incentivizes a lack of, of nuance. It, it, it you mm. know, it, it doesn't, there is no, you know, doing giant journalistic projects like you do with um, with the one that you you actually are just doing this year with the Washington Post, but also with the Fatal Force Project, doesn't necessarily lead to trending or retweets necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's difficult. It's tough, and it you know it's not always as viral or popular. Although one thing I will say, having done a lot of projects, is that I do think people are hungry for this type of work. Right, that it's a level. There's a level of counter programming to it. Yeah, that there are a lot of times where people go, "I got an hour. I would love to read the smartest 45 minute read about whatever. <laughs> I don't want to read about a Trump thing. I don't want to read about a like, you know where where there is a sense of you know people do value that work. In you know, I, I it's tough, right? Because I do think that the social media world we live in is kind of very quick hit and short and emotional. And, you know, look, I am as addicted to it as anyone else and very often take breaks to try to (laughs) reset my brain. But I think that there's, I do think there's reward to it because I think that doing this type of work, I think there are two things. One, I do think readers want it. I I think that- And we hear from readers all the time who come in disagreeing with the premise or whatever it is, who at the end of the day say, all right, this was pretty fair, or you quoted everyone, or, you know, people people appreciate, I think we live in a show me, don't tell me media environment where everyone is going to check all the people you quoted and look up all the data themselves, right? It's not a, well, the Washington Post said this, so therefore it must be true. There's a skepticism across the board, right? And so I think that if you take the time to show people, all right, this is where all the data came from. We called all these people. They all weighed in. They all did. Even people who might still kind of disagree with you or not like the finding can appreciate the rigor. And I think that that is one way to hopefully build trust. Uh, but beyond that, also, for me at least, in a kind of pseudo beat reporter sense, 
doing work like this has made my daily journalism a lot easier. In part because if you have to interview 100 people for a piece, suddenly you got 100 cell phone numbers. Mm-hmm. And people know you and they're texting you and they're calling you. You have a different understanding of all these different places that you've had to drill into. And so suddenly when something happens, you can contextualize it and be smarter about it than um, than if you're just, you know, jumping from one news thing to the next. Later, we'll dig into a bias against faith among the establishment corporate media. But now, what has social media like Twitter done to the media landscape? I do think that, uh, you know, the rise of Trump over these last few years has done a lot to the media, I would say, you know, really has been corrosive to to the the trust that, that the public has in, in the media. And But part of it was, you know, Donald Trump himself was very online, you know, it is very online. Ta-Nehisi Coates had this great quote in a Chris Hayes podcast, and he said he called Trump the perfect Twitter user, an artist being matched to his genre. Uh, And it almost feels like the media had to meet Trump on his own playing field with with Twitter over these last few years, where it's become, because that is his mode of choice of communication, it's become, all of a sudden, again, given outsized importance in the media because of that's that's where Trump is. Yeah, I certainly think that's true. Um, and I think that, I think one thing Trump played into and I think pushed us over the edge with is, you know, one of my points, one of the things I think about a lot, and I, is, is I, I just think that too much of our media is politics. And I don't think that is helpful for us in terms of building trust from readers. I don't think it's helpful in terms of us right-sizing our priorities. And I think more than, I think it's fair to say more than any other president, certainly in my lifetime, President Trump wanted that, right? He made more news than anyone else. He was constantly weighing in and talking and doing and tweeting. and, And because of that, you know, I think you'd be very hard-pressed, with the exception of when there were literally streets on fire and a global pandemic, to turn on cable news in the last four years and not find it being about politics. It's not as if there's not other news that has happened <laughs> in the last four years. Yeah. You know, like br- bridges have, have fallen and earthquakes have happened and there have been hurricanes and there have been local scandals and there have been... I remember, I think I've told this story before, but... I was in South Africa, New Year's Eve, 17 into 18. And that was when Fire and Fury came out, the Michael Wolff book. And it was the only thing anyone in America could talk about. Like in the run-up for weeks, and then when the people were getting early copies, it was this whole thing. And it was going to take down the Trump White House. And I was, you know, blissfully in Johannesburg (laughs) in my Airbnb you know, didn't have cable. And so the only news channel I had for this week and a half, two weeks, was the BBC World News. And every time I turned it on, I found out about news that had happened. <laughs> a bridge had fallen down somewhere. <laughs> a, you know, all types of things that actually had consequence to people's lives. And on occasion, they would go, yeah, the Americans are all freaking out because of a new book about President Trump. <laughs> okay, so today in France, and like, <laughs> it was just... And, and I, I just think about that a lot, right? That what would happen if we weren't such a slave to national politics? And would that allow for more in-depth reporting of policy, of issues, of things that help build trust, things that feel explanatory, things that, you know, 
because I do think that when everything is so talking head, headline, what just happened five minutes ago, and here's my expert opinion, even though I don't even really know what happened yet, I think that does erode trust in a way that I think uh, isn't good for us. And, and frankly, also, I think it helps lead to a populace that knows less about fewer things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it when, right. I, I, I look at like Anderson Cooper as someone who has done great journalistic work all around mm-hmm. the world. And, you know, no matter what happened this year, whether it was the, you know, political, uh, you know, the protests, uh, the social justice protests and, the, and, and then the, the riots that came, you know, maybe that were sort of tangential to that uh, or any sort of natural disaster, no matter what it was, Anderson was sticking in the studio and talking to pundits about Trump. And it, and, and I, I just, it's, it was clearly a shift, but I mean, I, I'm not saying it's Anderson Cooper's, you know, decision even. I mean, it, it probably was, was what was, whether it was what was rating or what was, uh, you know, prioritized, that was, that was the, the move. And it, and it was a clear shift from, from where things were even, you know, five or 10 years ago, although I would say the focus on politics uh, was there, you know, even yeah. then. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, frankly, you got to go back probably to the the Clinton years and the Gingrich House is when you see a ton of that shift and the, and the rise really in the kind of talking head programs from Meet the Press to the other, you know, that we've seen this shift going back several decades. But I do think that, you know, Trump is a, like, extinction-level event for any number of things, right? And so it, it, so it's a different, you know, and so suddenly he is, like, carbon-crafted to exploit all of this in a way that previous presidents of any, of, of any party just didn't do. Yeah. And, and so I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, I, look, another example I think of, you know, I watched— um, you know, I, as a general rule, if if cable news is on, which frankly it isn't very often in my home, but if it is, it's typically CNN. You know, I used to have a contract at CNN. I know a lot of the folks there. I love, Abby Phillips, a really dear friend, so I've loved seeing her kind of like become the star. I always knew she would be. But you know, it, it struck me as I was watching uh, on election night that for so many hours, right, we knew we weren't going to know. <laughs> Right. Like we, we absolutely knew we weren't going to know. Right. Just because the way the ballots were going to work this year in different states. And by the way, until the West Coast closes, we wouldn't know in a normal year anyway. And what struck me, you know, and look, and I am wonky and like politics and love, you know, John King, Kornacki and all this stuff. And also I found myself wanting, as someone who has really tried to kind of get out of the daily politics in terms of my own consumption and that's, a, I found myself wanting a segment from Georgia reported out about what were the lines like. A segment from Oregon about they just passed drug legalization. And this, like, the, like a bunch of things had actually happened. And yet I watched the news for like eight hours and learned no news. Yeah. Even that it was, right. it, it was just all the like in the moment national politics, not, you know. And again, like break off for five minutes and teach me something about what happened today. Right? Like an election happened across the country. Surely there was some actual news that happened, <laughs> like, in, you know, other than just who will win the big thing. Right. Yeah. Even local races, certainly, you know, ballot, ballot measures yeah. or like, you know, and some of yeah. that stuff you can kind of put in the can. You know what's going to happen. You know what's going to pass this. What's the smartest three minutes on it? Yeah. To, even just to give me a break from the big board. <laughs> you know, like right. just, just to like fill some time and space. <laughs> which you knew you were going to have. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and and so I, I think moving away from Trump, but sticking with this sort of, uh, I would say a bias. People think of like a political bias that the media has, or I, I've written about like a geographic bias mm-hmm. towards you know the Acela corridor in New York and D.C. But I I do think you know you're absolutely right about this this bias towards politics as a you know as an organizing principle, uh, and particularly like national D.C. politics, uh, because that is you know if people say what what are you most interested in what what sort of anchors your life, a lot of people that are in the media would would describe it as sort of the hobbyism of politics, whereas I think that is the most disconnected from the average person out, you know, in the world, in America. And I would say also, I mean, I, I don't even think it's necessarily saying, oh, middle America. Like, I think there's lots of people in D.C. and New York who are completely divorced from, from national politics and finding it harder and harder to connect with, a, a, you know, a media, legacy media that doesn't, you know, think about things in other kinds of community organizing ways, like, you know, whether it's through faith or through, you know, clubs that you're involved in, or even just local government, it's not represented on the national media scale. Of course. And and I I think that that actually makes it harder for us to do good political coverage as well. Right. So, So, for example, you know, recently, you know, we've got the Georgia Senate races that are happening, and one of the big sub, one of the big subplots of this have been the efforts of Republicans to paint uh, Warnock as radical. Um, it has been their strategy against him. Mm. And one thing I thought was really interesting, right? So, he, so among the attack, and I, and I'm not going to suggest that there's nothing legitimate there or anything, you know, but among the attacks was um, he had given a speech. Uh, that was a playoff of a very traditional uh, qu- Christian reading of Matthew, you can't serve two masters. Um, and he had given it, and I, I believe he, he was speaking um, at a military service, like a specifically honoring the, and so he, you know, so typically people say you can't serve wealth and, and money and uh, God, money, yeah, you know, like, yeah. and so he made this aside, well, you know, you can't serve, you know, you can't serve both the military and the, and there's been this kind of attack along these lines that, uh, you know, and there's been, so the, the, the accusation has been that he was saying you can't serve in the military and be a Christian, which one I think is a bad faith reading of what he actually said word for word. But beyond that, though, there's also been an assumption in the political coverage. And one of the reasons, by the way, one of the reasons this stuck out to me is that my black grandfather was a Baptist minister who I'm positive I have heard give this exact sermon, (laughs) right? So this was like a space that like spoke to things that I, you know, feel and, and kind of think about contextually. But there's kind of an assumption sometimes in the media that this is going to play a certain way to some people, right? And I would love to read a, you know, not necessarily a defensive Warnock. I've read those, right? I'd love to read a piece that, a smart piece about what black congregants in Georgia think about this. Yeah. About, the, like, that, like, in some ways, there's this, this kind of, well, clearly this is not going to work for the white voters of Georgia, and so therefore it's a, and, and I just... I think that sometimes, again, we were talking earlier about like the nuance and complication. Again, this isn't me suggesting that this might not be bad for him. It very likely might, right? But it's a sense of, I think we sometimes just accept these premises when it's our job to interrogate them. Right, right. Well, let's find out. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah. that and, and, and faith, honestly, is one of the biggest ones that I feel like, you know, because faith also, you know, connects people, you know, whether it's... Uh, you, 
you know, it, it connects to social issues. Uh, it, it, I think, complicates ideas of, of um, you know, how people, uh, I don't want to say prioritize their life, mm-hmm. but, but certainly it's, there are many reasons why people vote the way they vote, um, and and you know it's it's not it's not nearly as simple I would say as as the the national media makes it out to be. Yeah, no, definitely, I, I agree with that completely, and I and I think, and again, I think all of these issues, uh, faith, economics, all, all the things that make up our country and, and their and the motivations of the electorate are really complicated and really nuanced, and I think very often we paint with very broad brushes in any number of ways, and also. I think we can, in the media, underestimate our role as explainers. And what I mean by that is, you know, we we write the story, we write the story about how the latest gun massacre isn't going to move anything politically before we write the moving profile of the family of the victim that Senator Romney might pick up on the front page of the Washington Post and go, we got to do something this time. Right. The reality is the way we cover things are a factor in what ends up happening. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time prognosticating. <laughs> and and I might suggest that if we spent as much time or perhaps more time on the actual issues themselves, who knows what might happen. Breaking down the media thing versus the discourse around the thing. That's next. But first, The Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas, featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. More with Wes Lowry in a minute, but first, let's talk about COVID and a media pivot. Many in the media who are based in New York City have been outraged on Twitter over the decisions by Andrew Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio to close schools again over the COVID rates. A column by Nick Kristof in the New York Times actually argued when Trump was right and many Democrats wrong about the risk to kids and teachers over COVID and opening schools. This, of course, was too late. The damage was already done, done in large part by media members themselves for months over the summer. As soon as Donald Trump started arguing about the need for kids to be in school rather than virtual learning, the media pushback began. In the uh, Fourth Watch newsletter, I laid out several examples. There was Anderson Cooper on CNN asking the head of the IHME in July, Kids going back to school, if that happens, that means more people will die. There was the New York Times writing a piece in August filled with hyperbole and innuendo about a White House, quote, pressure campaign to open schools. There was the Daily Beast writing a story about four teachers who died from COVID while conveniently leaving out the fact that they all contracted COVID outside of school and could have been any profession. This was the drumbeat for months until their kids had to stay home because the New York City rates just happened to rise above 3%. Alec McGillis of ProPublica has been doing great work on this story, a rare voice of dissent, while the rest of the media instinctively push back against Trump. He's been writing about the ways distance learning hurts poorer students and ways the science does not back up the need to close the schools. He laid out all the ways that students are hurting because of school closures, none of which are due to them dying or even getting sick from COVID. The media reaped what it sowed on COVID coverage when it came to schools, and now their kids are stuck at home. Now, back to Wesley Lowry. I do think that the average media consumer, uh, and I would say 
put this away from people within the media uh, and sure. are not the kind of people that are necessarily populating Twitter or, or certainly very loud on Twitter and, be, and, and actually do, I think, appreciate this, uh, the, the hard work that goes into these projects um, and, and the average you know, consumer does do it. But it also brings up, there's a couple of examples of this, but it does seem like there's the thing there, and then there's the discourse about the thing mm-hmm. on, on Twitter often and, and, and the discourse about it suddenly becomes like overtakes the thing itself. Um, and, and even in just how people think of the thing, uh, and you know, I think it's, it's partially because, you know, people, um, in the media, uh, put so much weight into, into Twitter that, that this, this often happens. And then people are sometimes scared off of, you know, doing the thing because of the discourse that might emerge around it afterwards. I, I think that's 100% true. And I, I think that there's a real, it, it's really difficult, right? It. I remember I used to think about, and this was a little naive, but I, I used to think about that I wanted to use Twitter as a space to like think and learn out loud, yeah. right? That it wasn't my, that look, this isn't my published work. This isn't the the piece I'm writing. This isn't the, right? And so I wanted to be able to use it to share things that I was learning in my reporting, but also that I would find value in saying a thing and then people were pushing back on it. And so now I'm learning through this process, right? right? Or I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't. It's like a but, making of. Sure, of course, right? In the same way that, you know, any of us who've worked in a newsroom knows that that's how most journalism works too. Well, what about this? And then someone chimes in, well, actually, the thing you need to know about that is this thing. Or, you know, no, that's not really right. That's not... And that there's a the sausage making to it, right? At least yeah. any good journalism, right? You you're, there's push and pull, and you're debating, and you're arguing, and you're learning, and and but I, I think that that is very difficult, in part because, I mean, look, I, I think Twitter is a space that is custom created to be bad for dialogue, <laughs> and what I mean by that is you're having you're having fast-paced conversations about the most complicated things in the world with in incomplete sentences in a chat room where people are encountering things hours later outside of the context in different contexts and you're doing it in public yeah performative and so you, there's a performative yeah, yeah. aspect of it there's like you know there's a lot of signaling things become proxy wars so you see people arguing and they're not even arguing about the thing they're arguing about it's really some other point <laughs> they're mad at the last person who they argued with on twitter and so now they're projecting that onto you or vice versa and so it's it's a really tough, but I think you're right that very often the conversation becomes about something else. It's not actually the conversation about the conversation. And and I just think that, that totally, you know, it's, it's just not, you know, and, and like I said, and there's also just a lot of virtue signaling, I think, in every direction, right? right. I think that it's not, there's not much reward in being the nuanced, let me talk to everyone, let's figure this out person. <laughs> Right. No, exactly. I, yeah, especially in a, in a closed bubble like this, where, you know, the full reach, it doesn't take that much to have it. Uh, let me give you a couple examples of it. I, I, I'm curious if you think this is true. And, and also if you think it's not true, uh, I 1619 project is, is, is an example of journalism, a big, big journalistic effort that mm-hmm. I actually wrote about in fourth watch. I think it was one of the most, it's kind of crazy to think it actually, you know, it feels like it's been around, you know, that it's, it's such a storyline this year, but it actually was in 2019 that it came out, um, you know, was this, this giant undertaking. I thought of it kind of like a thought experiment um, and, mm-hmm. and really an interesting one. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't anything like, um, 
you know, the the, the project itself was this big uh, effort that seemed very interesting and and noble and and gave you know gives people something to think about. But then the discourse about it, whether it was you know on some level, I think it was okay. You know, we're going to make it into you know textbooks, but it also was the the Twitter you know, very online-ness of what it became and what I think people now think of it now, whereas if you go back and actually look at the project itself, it's very different than what the project has become in the minds of a lot of people, I think, on both sides, supporting it and and those who have a problem with it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I, you know, all my disclaimers that I think I know personally, like, Eighty-seven percent of the people involved in that project, yeah. <laughs> but but I but I think that that's you know and I I think that that's true. You know I I think that it became a stand-in for something else, um, in the minds of any number of people. I think that most of the debate was not about the work itself. I think even the parts of the debate that were about the work itself became about increasingly small parts of it. Yeah. I mean, we're like, the enduring controversy is literally about one sentence in one essay. <laughs> <laughs> in what was an entire issue of the New York Times magazine. Right. Right. Not, not, and that's not me suggesting that that sentence or that essay were not above criticism. Right. But I do think there's a, you know, there's a loss of perspective at times. I don't think it was aided by the fact that everyone was hyper online. This whole thing was playing out in these ways that were um, often... Uh, abbreviated and fast and snappy because of the nature of social media. And then also, I think that it became it became this symbol, it became this thing to be debated in different silos very often that, to me, felt divorced from the actual work itself. Yeah. You know, and I, and I and I think in any number of directions, right? And I and I think that um, again, everything becomes a proxy war, and, and I and I think that that is really, you know, and we come to expect that in our partisan politics. But I do think sometimes we in the media, and certainly the commentary class of the media, allow that to happen too. We're going to end with Lowry's much-discussed column on objectivity versus, quote, moral clarity from this year. And the fourth Watch Lightning Round, six questions in a little more than 60 seconds. But first, let's dig into a great moment in journalism that shows us kind of what we should be expecting for the next four years. The Daily Beast. This was their tweet. Pet psychic Beth Lee Crowther says Joe Biden's dogs, Major and Champ, told her they are excited to live in the White House. They also say their master will be a great president. That's that's the tweet. That's the story. Welcome to the next four years, everyone. Back to Wes Lowry. You wrote a great piece in the New York Times earlier this year uh, that, you know, I think essentially uh, dealt with uh, this idea of moral clarity. Um, mm-hmm. And it was in the context of, of after the Tom Cotton op-ed um, that, uh, you know, I think we've I've written about it. We've talked about it um, on, on this podcast also with some of the other guests. Uh, the, the, the pushback, I would say... Yeah. And there might be another example of the discourse, you know, overriding the the thing. Um, but you know, the 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 pushback was that uh, that this put black staff in danger, um, and then you know that was sort of pulled back, and and there were other reasons. Anyway, the opinion editor was gone. Um, 
I, I think your piece made a lot of sense, and I want to read a, a piece of it. But I, I do think that there's a there's a distinction between opinion and and uh, you know news uh, coverage. Um, sure. So you wrote instead of telling hard truths in this polarized environment, America's newsrooms too often deprive their readers of plainly stated facts that could expose reporters to accusations of impartiality or imbalance or um, of partiality or imbalance. And I think that's completely true. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I wonder why we can't have an opinion section that has a place for things that are bad opinions. So I think I think we should. I think that there are, on the cotton op-ed and in general, I think there are a few things. The, fir- the first thing I like to contextually note always, right? I don't think I know James Bennett. Um, and I'm sure and I know a lot of people who know him and really like him and his work. I will also note that James Bennett got them sued for libel by Sarah Palin. Still um, going. I think. Personally yeah. got them sued. He inserted the thing. Um, and so it, while it's clear that the cotton op-ed was the straw that broke the camel's back here, it can be a little reductive to suggest that, you know, sometimes the narrative is like, and this guy got run out just for this thing. And it's like, well, there had been some issues hmm. about the bureaucracy of the New York Times opinion page. And and had created some very public issues for them. Um, the, but I think that for me on that, and I and I you know I feel this separate of the politics of Tom Cotton or any of this, right? I think there's got to be a really unique, and this is my own sense. Not obviously, not everyone agrees with me on this. I think there's got to be a very unique circumstance and unique newsworthiness in which we allow um, public officials and and partisans access to our news pages, or to our opinion pages even, mm-hmm. that Tom Cotton can walk onto the Senate floor and give a speech. When he, he for example, very famously <laughs> was, was railing against D.C. statehood, an issue that is uh, close to me because I live in the district. And it wasn't an op-ed, but I saw the clip. Everyone saw it. Why? Because he has one of the most massive platforms in the country. He's a United States senator. Yeah. And so I do think that there's an argument, and I mean, and I mean this removed of every other, you know, I, I think this goes for Bernie Sanders and John Kerry and for, that I think there are a lot of people who get to live on our op-ed pages who frankly just don't need to be there at all. Um, that I, I, so I think that's one. I think two, um, I do think that there, and I get pushed back on this sometimes. I went on the Three Fits podcast and we went back and forth on this a bit. I do think that in addition to the actual opinion that was expressed in the Cotton Op-Ed, and this is my opinion and I think it's that of others, I also just don't think it was well argued. I don't think it was a well-edited column. Mm. And, and I think that there is a sense of, you know, talking to black staffers at the Times and other places, and again, a lot of, I mean, there are seven black people in journalism, we're all friends, right? And so that's my like floating caveat, right? But... The there was a sense, and this was literally written into that union statement that they put out initially, right? Was that they didn't think it had the journalistic rigor to belong, you know, that I actually think someone asked me this in a panel once. Well, shouldn't there be room for uh, you know, a well-argued piece about why the National Guard would be good instead of, and I said, yeah, there would be. That's not the piece Tom Cotton wrote, <laughs> right? Like, that I, I'd be fast, as someone who actually covered and spends a lot of time in the streets at these things, I would be fascinated for the op-ed pages to <laughs> to deploy a, a full analysis of exactly how you should police these protests. That's not even close to what this was, right? 
And so I think that, look, I do think there's space for bad opinions. I do think that, um, look, I, I think the New York Times opinion page has plenty of them and publishes plenty of them as is. <laughs> I don't think there's any debate. And that, probably that, badly edited the columns also. Sure. But, yeah. No, that, no, that's certainly true, right? You know, but, like, but I don't think there's any debate the New York Times opinion page is a home for bad opinions. <laughs> but, but, I, but I do think that, for me at least, and, that's, and I don't mean that as an attack. I know editors there and people there. I think they publish a lot of great stuff too. Yeah. But the nature of an opinion page is some of the, I'm going to think some of the stuff's bad. Or they dumb. publish a lot of stuff, so yeah. Yeah, it, but the but I do think that we in media need to think about, and, and and frankly, I think activists, I think the Twitter critics, I think people like this have been asking us to think about this for a long time, and I think institutionally we've refused to, is that, you know, we do have to think about ourselves as, you know, we do provide platform to people, that we do signal boost that there are, that look, we don't give Louis Farrakhan a column. He might have some interesting bad opinions. <laughs> There's a reason we're not printing them in the New York Times opinion page, right? And I'm not necessarily suggesting that what Tom Cotton wrote is there, but I'm stating that to note that we accept that we make subjective decisions already. That this isn't just some town square where everyone gets to show up right. and has a right to New York Times column, right? And so I do think that there are some things, like I said, political partisans, elected officials, right, where I think we might seize back some of our versus, by the way, um, you know, there is a, the Times wrote a column, and this, people got mad about them about this too, but they wrote, they wrote, ran a column by an abolitionist who said, I think that line was something like, when, yes, we mean, get, literally get rid of the police. But that abolitionist um, is very prominent in the space, lives in New York, and I believe was her first time ever appearing in the Times, that's a voice that I think would have been interesting to have involved much earlier. Yeah, yeah. Well, but <laughs> right? yeah, I mean, but, right, absolutely. Let's I mean, publish I think... an actual socialist. Let's publish an actual, like, you know, like, and, and I think that sometimes we don't get that in our space. You know, it, that the reality is it's just a lot of establishment types <laughs> getting to publish their bad opinions. Right, right. And too often, I would say both sides are, are very selective in, in, you know, almost hypocritical in, in, the, in the criticism of, of, you know, who gets and who doesn't get the, the platforms. Yeah, and uh, I, I, think, I, think so. I think so too. And so I just think that, you know, in a world where I was running a page like that, I would want the people who I'm enlisting in some ways to represent people who don't already have a seat at this table. Yeah. Right. And so, and so that is the actual abolitionist. That is the, maybe it's a National Guard guy who's saying how he would deal with the protest. Yeah. Right. Like there, I think there's all types of space there. I don't really need, like I said, other than, you know, do I maybe let the elected mayor of DC write on statehood? Sure. Right. In like hyper specific spaces. But I don't need insert random senator weighing in on insert random thing. Yeah. Another reason to go go local. Look local. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Wes, last uh, last thing here. Lightning round. Uh, where were you born? I was born in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Oh, I'm also in New Jersey. Nice. Uh, as a journalist uh, at uh, CBS News Now, what's one benefit, one cost of your role? Uh, one benefit is that I get to, one benefit is that I get to talk to all types of interesting people and go to all types of interesting places. I think I've got, I think I'm up in the forties in terms of the number of states I've written from, oh. uh, which is exciting. I got a map. I'm trying to get all the way to 50. <laughs> uh, one drawback I think is that I, I do think we get sucked into a media subculture. We have to follow the news and be junkies in a way that 
normal people don't. And I think sometimes we can miss out a little bit on real normal life because of that. What's a random state that you have shockingly loved? Um, so I, I really like Montana. Hmm. Um, I, I like Rhode Island. So I used to be at the Boston Globe. And so I did a lot of New England states. And I really liked Rhode Island. Um, nice. and, and I had some fun in West Virginia. All right. Uh, who is someone who's been a mentor for you? Hmm. That's a good question because there's been like a million different people in, in different contexts. Um, give a couple. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a couple. So, um, so I think about, for example, uh, Anna Hall at the Washington Post. Now, Anne isn't, she's the type of person who like writers, writers know, but the average like person on Twitter doesn't. Anne Hall is possibly the best newspaper feature writer ever. Wow. Um, she won, she, most famously won the Pulitzer for the Walter Reed investigation with Anna Priest. But she had previously won a Pulitzer, and I think she was a feature writing finalist seven times or something like that. I mean, so just like every year for a full decade. Um, and sh- we sat um, we sat face-to-face in one of our pods. And she is just, you know, kind of an odd couple on the outspoken, like, young black guy getting fights on Twitter. <laughs> She's the, like, older, white lesbian, feature, like, beautiful writer. And we just became, like, close friends, really smart. She still pops in my inbox to give me a piece of advice or compliment a piece. And and I and I remember though when we won the Pulitzer in the 16 for Fatal Force, she walks up to me in the hallway right bef- before the big thing and says, "Dude, you're only like I think it was 25, 26. Dude. All right, keep going. What's next?" and walks away. <laughs> and and I, and it, for me it was a big moment. It was one, like I said, this is the kind of person I, I get to sit around and it's just, you know, one of the things I loved about the post is I was surrounded by some of the best journalists in the world. Just like you would take it in via osmosis at the water cooler and other places. And this is one of the like best newspaper journalists of a generation, acknowledging my work, engaging in it, and then also going, all right. So what do you got for me next? What right. are we doing? And and I really appreciated that and appreciate her. So that's probably my best answer to that one. Nice. Who is one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Hmm. I think about that. I mean, there's any number of folks, um, you know, because I, you know, I've always tried to um, – read really broadly and also just kind of like hang out with folks broadly. So personally, uh, actually Michelle Fields, okay. uh, who had been at Breitbart and then at the Huffington Post and famously got kind of like attacked by Corey Lewandowski yeah, and yeah. thing. And Michelle's an old, I mean, uh, Michelle's an old friend back from our like early twenties in, um, in DC days. Um, and so love, love Michelle. Um, I think about, you know, Elena Plot and I are really close. Um, and we kind of cover very different worlds. Uh, she does much more uh, kind of Republican politics in that yes. space. I'm obviously kind of like in the Black Lives Matter space and black politicians, Democratic politics. She's a really dear friend. I mean, we get dinner every <laughs> every so often. I love Tim Alberta professionally, uh, setting aside the current kind of like RNC scandal or whatnot. I, I, I thought his book was one of the best ones written um, in this moment. Yeah. Um, and, and also speaking of like pseudo controversial narrative, dramatic books, uh, JD Vance is a really lovely human. Uh, we've met in a few green rooms and I, he's, he's always been really, really nice. 
Um, and so, nice. yeah. All right. Good list. Uh, who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Hmm. That's a, that's a really good question. I think that, um, hmm. I think that there is, I think there are a few people and a few different places. Uh, you know, I, I think that sometimes in terms of attention, there is a hyper focus on the kind of um, the individual correspondence. Yeah. Right. And so one thing I think about is I think about the work that places like the Marshall Project is doing or ProPublica or in terms of that like meat and potatoes, really good journalism that has like you have the potential for high impact. Um, but isn't always as sexy, right? Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? But doesn't necessarily trend or doesn't move the whole... I think there's a ton of journalism like that happening in these moments. And I unfortunately, I don't think a lot of it breaks through in the same way. Yeah. Um, even with even within our kind of conversations and context. And so I, that's, you know, I spent a lot of my time kind of reading in those spaces that, you know, what that looks like. I think ProPublica's been great. I think they've been great on COVID. I think they've been great on any number of things. Um, I think that, you know, look, I think even places like the Times and the Post, a lot of the work that, like, the worker bees of those staffs are doing in a given day is really good. Yeah. And is great journalism, but that doesn't necessarily break through in the same way Hannah Dreyer at the at the Post, for example, is just a gorgeous writer, a great investigator. Um, you know, sometimes the work like Stephanie McCrumman does or Eli Saslow. Like, and these are people who we know of. It's not like they're completely unheard of, but these are some of like the best working journalists in the country, yeah. <laughs> right? And yet, we are so often focused on who's on TV right now, <laughs> who who wrote a controversial column, who did you know? And I can you really appreciate in the in the, uh, in the press briefing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. When like the best journalism and again, and I don't mean that as a slam on any of like our friends who work in that space, they've got different jobs. Right. But some of the best journalism being done day in and day out are by these like newspaper and magazine reporters who no one knows their name. No one's stopping them on the street. Right. There's none of that. And they're doing some of the best of the industry. For sure. All right. Last thing. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Hmm. I don't. I don't think there will have been a major pivot from the way we cover politics of Trump. I think there's a lot of conversation now about like what happens to the media after Trump. But I, one, I don't believe in an after Trump. I don't think that exists. Uh, first of all, he's going to announce he's running for president again, and now we have to figure out what to do with that. Um, he's not going to stop tweeting. He's not going to stop that. I, you know, I would love to be wrong. I would love <laughs> to be wrong. <laughs> I think we will still be sitting here making a lot of the same mistakes about what to do with him and his people and how that works. Um, I think it's probably likely he's able to co-opt a lot of the Biden energy and attention. Um, and I, I just am not particularly confident that a year out from now, <laughs> we're going to have sorted any of this out. Wes Larry, thanks so much. Of course, man, anytime. Thanks to Wes Lowry. Go follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow. Always engaging with people at Wesley Lowry. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Just hit our one-year mark and it comes out three times a week. It's free. Subscribe now at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. 
If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. Song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And make sure you download this podcast. Not just listen, download, subscribe, uh, like, follow on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcast. This podcast was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Stay safe. We'll be back soon with an episode with Eric Erickson. Talk to you then.